Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. It's always exciting when I have someone who I've followed for a long time and learned a lot from on this show. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Brandon Bastide, who's the CEO of Branded. He's the newly appointed CEO, and it's a really interesting company doing fascinating work, very much in line with some of the things we track here on the podcast. We'll get into all that in a bit. Before we do any of that, Brandon, welcome to Trending in Education. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's it's great to see you. Some people may not know that you know we were technically officially colleagues for uh, a little while at Kaplan, and you know I too follow a lot of what you are doing, you know, podcast wise and interviewing. So anyway, first, thanks for having me back. It's great to see you, and I like having these chances to reconnect. In addition to chat about fun, exciting things happening out there. Yeah, well, and also you are kind of a working personality in education, where you are sharing a lot. If folks are not aware of Brandon on LinkedIn in particular is where I follow you. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. We'll include a link to what Brandon's got going on there. He does put out some really thoughtful and thought-provoking posts from time to time, generally focused on higher ed and the future of work and work-learn partnerships and some of the things we'll talk about a little bit later on. But before we do that, some folks out there might not know you, and we always like to start at the top by hearing your origin story. I do think at times you look a little bit like Clark Kent, so uh, feel free to share that aspect of the story or share whatever you'd like. But can you catch our listeners up on who you are and how you got to this point in your career? Yeah, yeah. I don't look the glasses or whatever might support your your theory a little bit, but uh, there's no there's no no connection there. No origin story that involves things like kryptonite. Of course, whatnot. of course. We're sticking to that story. I got you. Yeah, it's all good. But well, look, I don't know how how far back you want to go on origin story, but it's interesting. So I live in Northern Virginia right now, just outside of Washington D.C., and I can claim that I'm a Virginia native because I was born in Tazewell, Virginia. But Tazewell, Virginia is in some ways almost like a different country than, you know, where I live in Northern Virginia. It's in the southwest corner of the state, Appalachia, and, you know, was for all intents and purposes when I was born there, it was a coal mining town. You know, my dad was a general manager of a firm that did circuit board manufacturing for mining equipment. And mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you talk about origin story, in some ways I start there for, for a couple of reasons. You know, that is an area that is a totally different world than the world that I live in now. Mm -hmm. Very humble beginnings would be a good way to put it. And, you know, what was linked to us leaving Tazewell was my parents wanting to make sure that by the time I started school, we were in you know, world-class public school districts, et cetera. And mm -hmm. so they moved to Pittsburgh right when I started school. And it was always their dream that I would go to college. And it, it was my dad and mom's dream that they would have that funded. You know, they started saving for college for me when I was born. Mm. My dad was the first on his family to get a college degree. I was the first on my mom's side of the family to get a college degree. But it mm -hmm. was their dream. And it was, you know, what they did for me and ultimately my sister that was the first origin story and inspiration for what I'm doing, right? I mean, I, I feel really fortunate. I've also been privileged just by the nature of what I just described, right? Who had, mm. you know, two parents who made this one of their priorities and, you know, part of their American dream was to be able to send 
their son and daughter to college and, mm. and, and to say, hey, you know, you can do it debt free because we've saved money for you. So, right. look, I start there. All my heroes, all of my favorite people have been teachers or coaches. And of course, the coaches were also teachers, college faculties. So I look at this as a, a lifelong opportunity to just give back for the opportunities that I've had. And, you know, it's helpful to be reminded of, you know, how far I've come right mm -hmm. from what was Haswell to, to Vienna, Virginia, even though we're, we're still in the same state, but in any event, you know, that that's a little bit of the shaping of it. I was a product of public schools, K through 12. I went to Duke university. They recruited me to run track and cross country. So I say they wanted me for my legs, not my brains, but the track and cross country career came to an end pretty quickly because of an injury. Hmm. And, and although that was a really tough thing to go through, it was a transformative moment in my history mm -hmm. where I really got deeply engaged in a lot of the opportunities that a place like Duke provided. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's the quick overview before. Yeah. Career talk. And there's a lot in there. And then there's a lot that I've seen you post about your experiences running cross country, your experiences at Duke, even some of the student organizations that you founded. Like there's a lot to your history, which is why I think folks should check out Brandon. Uh, I think LinkedIn's probably the best place to keep track of that stuff. And then from the career arc side of things, there's a significant stint at Gallup, a significant stint at Kaplan, where we did overlap a little bit. And now you're embarking on a new chapter as a CEO at Branded. Congratulations. And can you catch us up a little more on that professional arc? Because I think you're at a point where, you know, you can give others advice and we can learn perhaps from how you got from point A to point B along the way. But can you catch us up a little more on the career aspect of your background, which ultimately does tie back to a lot of what you're doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I started six months after I graduated from college by starting a company mm. called Outside the Classroom. That was a company I founded in 2000. Mm. And, you know, look, I was fresh out of college. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I just, I had an idea that I was really, really passionate about. And I just, I just said, I got to go do this. Right. And so it wasn't like I was sitting there on the internet, searching around for ideas on how to be an entrepreneur or start mm -hmm. a company. You know, I feel like I've always had some entrepreneurial instincts and I've been in very entrepreneurial roles, even as I think about what I did at Gallup, mm -hmm. what I did at Kaplan. Mm -hmm. um, but in any event, you know, that, that was part of it. I would never have bet, or even, you know, towards the beginning of my senior year in college, if you'd asked me, what are you going to do for a career? I would have never said oh, I'm going to be in the education space, right? And, and yet I was a public policy major, believed deeply in important public policy issues. I can't think of many more important for the overall trajectory of an individual's life or a country or the health of you know, the globe, if we want to go that way, than, than what we do in education. And I think there's a real you know, through line of education into the workplace, right? Which we can talk about more. Yeah. But anyway, I started in what was an ed tech company in 2000, long before the term ed tech was started. It was a very focused niche play. The reason why I say that is that, you know, we were focused on addressing things like alcohol abuse prevention, sexual assault prevention. Right. And so outside the classroom developed some of the world's best online courses designed to help prevent bad things from happening in, you know, those, those areas where, you know, colleges struggled mightily and continue mm -hmm. to struggle addressing yeah. some challenges of students. And so, 
you know, that was an organization that I built over about 12 years. It was acquired by EverFi. EverFi has been a name that a lot of people have known outside the classroom was its first acquisition. And so, you know, very proud of what was accomplished there. About a year after that, that process took place, I joined Gallup and helped Gallup build an education practice. And Gallup had done some little, I'll call it dabbling in the education space. I mean, it wasn't like they were brand new to it, but it wasn't a brand or a, a firm that was known in the education space. And they wanted me to really build an education practice. And so that was just an incredible opportunity to take probably the world's most respected research brand, most trusted research brand, mm -hmm. and turn its turret towards, you know, some of the most important things in education. What do students want, right? What do, you know, parents and teachers want? I mean, so there was a broad set of studies that we did in partnership with, you know, foundations, educational organizations of all types, college universities. Probably the most famous thing that we were involved with there was the launch of the Gallup Purdue Index, which to this day is, is probably one of the most cited studies on higher education. It's the largest representative study of college graduates looking at their outcomes and work and life and trying to understand the, the linkages between those outcomes and the kinds of things they experienced or didn't experience during college. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that, Mike, because so much of that, what jumped out in that study was about things like work-integrated learning and relationship-rich education, right? If right. I just if I summarized a very big study down to two big takeaways, mm -hmm. it is we need to do more to expose students to work integrated learning opportunities and to relationship rich education, right? Mm -hmm, Mentoring. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about everything from long-term projects to right. internships uh, or co-op, right? right? All those things. Social <laughs> capital, all the Raj Chetty stuff. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, D Gallup was a defining time, you know, in my career. And I think also provided some defining clarity to, you know, the entire marketplace, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. And then, you know, the years I had at Kaplan were incredible. I mean, Kaplan is arguably the goat of education organizations. I mean, it's been around 85 years. It's history of innovation, global presence, broad array of activities. And so, you know, you kind of felt like you could kind of do anything, right? I mean, with its capabilities and, you know, global focus. And so yeah, yeah. just, you know, incredible impact. And a lot of the things that I focused on, you know, in addition to helping grow what Kaplan had already been doing was a lot in this kind of work learn space or this gray area between education and employers mm -hmm. that is now, I think, the most dynamic space in the world and the space that we need to invest the most in, figure out how to scale, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, that really was the beginning of the bridge to thinking about something like brand ed mm -hmm. and, and brand ed, you know, is just, uh, I mean, I'm there uh, now whopping six or seven weeks, but it, it, you know, it is all about what you would think of as relevant experiential education delivered by industry experts. And mm -hmm. we get to do that in partnership with iconic brands like yeah. Sotheby's, New York Times, Hyundai Nast, and City Football. So to me, it's some of the world's best education. They're transformative educational experiences. And it's all around that, you know, alignment between learning and work or the integration of learning and work. So th there has been an arc to the career. You know, it's not obvious, but, you know, each of these things I, I wasn't looking to do them next, right? Like I wasn't searching for the next thing. You know, they kind of happened or they appeared 
And when they did, you know, they just seemed like really obvious things that called me. So, yeah. And I think there's some lessons to be learned, you know, from this side, just watching what you do, because you're a very good communicator and you've put out a lot of your thinking on a regular basis. And I think that allows the opportunities to kind of find you a little bit more. And at the same time, you're also very much engaging with the entirety of the higher ed ecosystem, perhaps with a little bit of an outsider's lens, a little bit of a disruptive lens. Maybe we can go there next, just in terms of higher ed. What's the problem space look like there? What are we dealing with? We're coming out of the pandemic. You know, if you were to characterize the current state of play in higher education, maybe first in the U.S. and then perhaps looking broadly, which is another thing that I know you, you've made me look more critically at my child studying abroad in the next, you know, 10, 15 years, among other things. But if you were to characterize the, the state of play in higher ed today, where are we? Well, there are a ton of headwinds and challenges that higher ed institutions of all kinds are facing. And, you know, I'll, I'll rattle off some of the ones that have been with us for a while. Incredible skepticism about the work readiness of graduates mm -hmm. at the same time that costs have been going up, coinciding with increasing amounts of student loan debt that are on the shoulders of Americans. And, and so if you just take those things, right, you know, costs going up, loan debt increasing and doubts about the work readiness of graduates, that's not a good formula. But then you add some other really challenging things in. You know, we started to see this in the early days at Gallup in 2014, the beginnings of political polarization in the views of higher ed. Mm. And when I first saw it, I was really concerned. I shared it with a lot of college presidents who were like, well, this will pass. This is just a phase. And I, I tell you, we're almost 10 years into yeah, what they thought of as a really short phase. And it's just, it's worsening or deepening. I mean, higher ed right now, views of higher ed, it is the most politically polarized institution in America, statistically tied with the president. And of course, you either like the president or don't based right. on your political. I mean, that's as, almost as polarized as it gets. So the fact that higher ed has gotten to that place yeah. is incredibly problematic. And I think you're seeing it play out in so many different ways, right? red states and blue states and leaders, you know, in, in those states accordingly being challenged, pressured, you know, I mean, it is really going to be a very, very difficult environment for leaders. It would be without that political polarization based on the other things I've said, right. you know, it's got to show that it's relevant, that right. it still matters. How can we contain costs, right? The demographics too, right? Like the, the demographic cliff is still, we're, we're right up on it now, you know, and yeah. we almost had the pandemic yeah. occupied our, our attention so much that now the actual numbers of the rising generation are, are going down. So that's why I was thinking, you know, it takes me immediately to Clayton Christensen and disruption. And I know that's something you and I have talked about, and it's something that's very much top of mind when you're thinking about the, the model. There's a lot that's great in that institution or the, all of those institutions, but there's also a need to change, to disrupt, to put alternative models out there, and then particularly speaking to the the readiness of the college graduate, your model at Branded is different in that it is more akin to like an apprenticeship or internship model. You're actually learning as part of your post-secondary experience. And then as you mentioned, it's with some real iconic brands. So like you are really getting a feel for what it means to work at really a, a signature brand, which is is meaningful in this day and age. 
I'd love to hear a little more from you on what BrandEd is and how it's addressing some of the challenges we're facing both in the, the workspace and then also within higher ed. Yeah, we'll start with, you know, the public perception of college graduates and even high school graduates, right? There was good Gallup research and others who have looked at this. And essentially, there are very few people that are strongly convinced that we are doing a good job preparing students and then therefore graduates for success in the workplace. And so you start there and you say, okay, well, but why, right? Is that just perception or is that reality? And, you know, look, maybe a little of that is perception, but here's where, you know, to me, problematic and there's an opportunity. You say, okay, well, what really moves the needle on workplace success and outcomes later in life? And it's things like I had a job or an internship during college where I was able to apply what I was learning in the classroom. And that last part of the phrase, Mike, is the whole story. Mm -hmm. You could have had a paid job in college and if it had no relationship to what you were learning, there was no synergy or a synapse firing between that work and that more traditional learning and academic experience. It doesn't matter. Right. right? I mean, you got a paycheck. So from that perspective, it's a win, but it's the it's a job or an internship where you were able to apply what you were learning in the classroom. That is like a game changer. Hmm. So the, the issue, though, is that only a third of U.S. college graduates hit the mark on. So it's not that it's not happening. It's just it's not happening for two thirds of our graduates, which hmm. is the majority. And and so we're, we're missing an opportunity or not delivering fully on that for the majority of students. And hmm. so. You know, some universities or colleges will say that's hard to scale or requires effort. And every time I hear that, I just say, look, this is about intentionality. You know, you look at Northeastern or Drexel or the University of Waterloo in Canada. These are large institutions, right? Tens of thousands of students who are all in some form getting at least one, if not multiple co-op experiences. Hmm. And I'm not suggesting it's easy, but it can scale. With intentionality. I mean, th those are institutions that have built that into their DNA. They have been intentional about blending what we would think of as the more traditional academic curriculum with work experiences. And they're making sure that those synapses are firing between the two. Right. And when I look at what Brand Ed is doing, I mean, it's just right at the heart of it, right? Relevant experiential, taught by industry experts, and the great benefit of it being with iconic brands who, you know, are deeply enmeshed in the success of what we deliver to students. And so, you know, we run the gamut. We have non-credit pre-college programs for 10th, 11th, and 12th graders. Sotheby's and Condé Nast, for example, on the other end of the spectrum are running master's degree programs. You know, we are, are doing study abroad or what I would call experiential semesters mm. where, you know, look, you can study in New York City or London or Madrid, but, you know, imagine doing that with Sotheby's or Condé Nast or City Football or New York Times. Right. It's, you can still replicate the magic of a study abroad or study away experience, but now you add those experiential components that access to industry experts. I mean, I, I sat in on one of the gap year programs that the New York Times School of New York Times runs. It's journalists from the New York Times travel section. You know, he was literally critiquing students' columns that they wrote, you know, with his guidance. They were giving each other feedback. He took them into a week of his life. You know, what does he do in a, you know, in a, in a, in a typical week? 
right? It's an incredible experience. And that was just me sitting in on the class for a couple hours. Right. But the difference between that and, you know, what you get in a more traditional academic program, I mean, we have a full curriculum, we have subject matter experts, we have co-teachers who are part of that process, but there's always something experiential. And I was in London, I went on one of the Sotheby's programs, and that day they were visiting one of the galleries, one of the art galleries in London that was yeah. owned by a husband and wife team. They talked about one of the new projects they had just curated. They talked about the buying and selling of art. Like it's just, you're in it, right? Yeah, and yeah. That is the essence of what we want to do more of. We want to scale. And look, there's two things that are going to happen. I mean, we, we are being disruptive in our own right. But I think our biggest opportunity is to be a partner to high schools and college and universities that believe in scaling this, don't know how to do it as well, right? Mm -hmm. and, and can partner with an organization like Brand Dead to have this be part of what students can access. So, yep, we'll disrupt in some respects, but we're also going to be a key collaborator to help traditional educational institutions, you know, do this better. Yeah. Um, speaking with Brandon Bastide, the CEO of Branded, it's branded-edu.com if you want to check them out on their website. They have some really interesting programs, as you mentioned, and you know, it does bring me back to, I think you'll like this, I heard the other day, the three R's of education now are relevance, relevance, and relevance. That is something that I've been gravitating to increasingly on this show. It comes up a lot. It comes up more than you would expect, and it's kind of baked into the mission of your organization. Can you talk about how these programs come to life? Because, you know, there is an element of when you're inventing something new, there still needs to be some tethering to the current mental model. So you don't throw in everything out and it's totally, you know, disruptively confusing. There is an element of some through lines to existing models. It is higher education that you're still going after. Can you describe a little more about uh, how the model works? Yeah, look, I think we have traditionally, I'll give you a workplace and an education example that I think are very related. We have very traditionally thought of the teacher or the faculty as a single person in a classroom, right? And where I see some of the most innovative programs, educational programs, they're teaming examples. You're taking a subject matter expert who may or may not be an expert in instructional design, curriculum development. They might not be a great mentor to a student. You know, just put all that in a category where it's a partnership between a subject matter expert and an instructional expert. Let's mm -hmm. say. And the same thing we think of managers, right? We ask managers in the workplace to be everything. We need them to be business experts, you know, run the, the, the P&L, you know, part of the business. And then we also ask them to coach and develop all of their employees. And I got to tell you, you know, there are a few special people who are talented enough to do both of those really well, mm. or even interested in both of those really well. Same thing as it comes to teachers and faculty. You know, we have a lot of people teaching who are subject matter experts who don't really want, you know, to mentor or have not had any training in instructional design. And I think the flip side, you've got a lot of folks who are great teachers who aren't deep subject matter experts who have never actually worked outside of academia. Right. And there's nothing wrong with either of those. Just the, the, the simple idea here is 
the teaming, the partnership of what makes for a great transformative educational experience. I mean, that's yeah. a term that we use. We don't want to just educate. We don't just have a syllabus and curriculum. Like, what would make this a transformative experience? That bar is really, really high. And there's a lot that just doesn't even get close to it. And back to your question at the core, you know, what, what I experienced in that example of the New York Times, School of New York Times gap year program was an actual journalist, an expert a journalist at the New York Times. And we had a co-teacher who was the kind of instructional expert who really worked on the pedagogical design of the course hand in hand with the subject matter expert. And that interplay of the two creates real magic. Mm. And, you know, I think this is where, for example, online courses are starting to get better and better mm -hmm. is you're combining in many cases, a subject matter expert partnered with an instructional design expert. And those combinations are super powerful. So that, that's part of it. And then, you know, you take access to an organization that is invested in the future talent of that industry a Sotheby's who's interested in the future talent in the art industry, or, you know, a Condé Nast who's interested in the future talent in fashion. And you can get access to all of the, you know, physical locations, right, where students can actually, you know, walk in and be part of it. Like when I was in Madrid visiting the Condé Nast college site there, it's actually inside of the Condé Nast headquarters building. Mm -hmm. So the students every day, they walk into the Condé Nast building that Condé Nast employees walk into, they have, you know, their own classroom and area that's, you know, kind of a special section, but they have access to the photography studio. They have access to the wardrobe. So these students are accessing, you know, world-class resources. You know, it's not just a, a field trip. These are embedded in these organizations. The students at Sotheby's, they're going to auctions. They're seeing how auctions are being set up or curated. They're understanding the business behind this, not just you know, the aspects of what makes for, you know, great art or, you know, how to appraise it, but like the, the nuts and bolts of how the industry works. So, right. you know, those are examples of how this comes to life. But to give you the short answer, there is a pedagogical design, right? There is a curriculum. All those things that, that are, that we think of as part of traditional education are part of what we do, but it's that teaming of the subject matter expert, bringing that person to bear with those students and then giving them access to that world and industry, I just, I mean, I wouldn't want it any other way as a student. I wouldn't want it any other way as a parent for my children. I, I just think that it is the way that we need to be doing things going forward. And the idea that you're developing skills that will be relevant in the workplace is kind of baked into what you're doing. The workplace itself is really disruptive. I talk to a lot of people about the future of work and the impact of automation and artificial intelligence on all of our lives. Some of the domains that you're talking about here, whether it's the New York Times or Condé Nast, there are elements of that, that those industries are potentially being transformed, you know, every day. How do you think about that? And how do you lead brand ed in a world where, you know, you're preparing students for jobs that are going to be significantly different, even in a relatively short span of time, you know, five, 10 years from now, the yeah. job of a journalist is likely to be very different than the job of a journalist, at least than it was, say, five, 10 years ago. How are you thinking about that? I know you're someone who's very close to the disruptions on the work side. How does that connect to some of the work that you're doing at Brandit? Yeah, look, I think 
all, all of us are struggling. I mean, every educational institution or entity, every employer is struggling with how to keep up with the pace at which we all need to be upskilled, reskilled. I mean, you can insert any number of terms in there, but they all have skill in them. The, the constant need for learning, and it's coming from all angles, right? It's it's everything as simple as like I don't know. In any given day, I might access seventy different software tools. Right? Like I need to know how they operate. Like I just switched into Microsoft Office again, and you know, and I'm like struggling to you know, just learn some of the new features. And it's just, so it's the basic stuff like that, yeah. along with the major disruptions that come, you know, I know we're going to talk about AI and, you know, the chat GPTs of the world, but what's interesting is, I mean, they, they're disrupting education, right? How teachers teach, how students do their work or not. <laughs> and when one of the you know conversations we just had at Brand Ed was, you know, well, what's our position on AI type of conversation? And and one of the things that we're really focused on is, okay, how is AI being used in these organizations? Mm -hmm. And let's make sure we expose students to how that's happening. And, and to your point, that is going to change six months from now. It'll change three months from now. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be impossible to stay ahead of everything or to even stay on the cutting edge of it. But I think if you lean into the constancy of that relationship between industry experts who are in the job in these companies, right? Companies who are going through disruptions and thinking about disruption in many ways. I mean, think about the New York Times. Yeah. What it has done. I mean, it was an organization that struggled mightily with the shift from print to digital. It is now, as a business, extremely successful compared to what, what it, where it was a decade ago. And I'm sure it's going to continue to face disruptions. But the point is, you know, the learning from the people who have been in those seats, who are in those roles, if that is constantly fresh as part of what's being taught, how we are teaching, then I think it can be successful. But even in an organization where we have people in the industry, I think there's still a challenge to keep what you're doing relevant for students. I don't know how you go through something like accreditation for a full degree program. And, you know, see some of these transformations and then try and make some tweaks to it two or three or four years later, right? Like that's really, really hard to do. And, and you know, I do believe that some things are constant, but it's becoming more and more challenging to name what those are, right? Mm -hmm. So you say, well, what's uniquely human compared to generative AI? I mean, right, that, right. that's been in several of those conversations. I am not an AI expert, but I can tell you, I've watched a lot of brilliant people struggle with what is uniquely human that we can defend as human turf mm -hmm. in this world of fast moving AI? And I mean, th there's not a lot of answers in that bucket. So we've all got a challenge there, but I think it is staying freshly connected to those that are in the industry and reflecting those challenges to students. That is, I think, a special place where we can live. Yeah. It does strike me too that there are certain mindsets or habits of thought that become part of a culture, particularly like an organization like the New York Times or Sotheby's. And folks just have a way of approaching problems. And what you learn, I would imagine, as a rising student is these folks are struggling with this. This is hard. We don't really have answers. It's ill-defined. That's the experiential side, problem-based learning. In some sense, that never ends. You know, that's what our professional lives are. At least those of us who are going to 
stay out ahead of these automation waves. And, you know, humans are better at complexity in some ways. They're better at if it's complicated and you can do enough if-then statements, get an algorithmic solutions, the AIs are going to beat us. But if it's a place where my human connection to others, my ability to communicate, my ability to adapt and adjust quickly, my mental models, there is an emerging sensibility, I think, around the mindsets that are going to thrive in the future yeah. workplace, even if we don't necessarily know what the nature of that work is going to be. Yeah, look, I, I think mindset is an important part of this conversation. And then you start to ask interesting questions like, is that innate? Is it trained? You know, it's like talent, right? You know, talents can be developed into skills, but, you know, some of these talents are innate. And, mm -hmm. you know, people like to fight that because they don't want to believe that, like, you know, just some people are a little bit more predisposed to being successful at certain things. And I, I believe we all have a talent signature, like a fingerprint that's yep. entirely unique, right? And so part of our job is figuring that out. But back, back to mindset on this question about what's uniquely human in terms of what we teach or, or how we distinguish from AI, you know, one of the few things that keeps coming up in conversations is, is curiosity, is asking great questions. You know, you think about, you know, the difference between I'm trying to find some information and somebody who knows how to query Google with the right terminology, or they, they know how Google works enough to be able to ask it good questions or, you know, whatever it might be. Like we've had experience with this, like, oh, how do I get some information? Well, I ask Google, well, there's a difference between a not so good question and a really well-placed question to Google. It's the same thing with chat GPT, but our limitation is the, the limit of our, you know, curiosity about something, anything. And I worry a lot because I say, okay, well, curiosity and asking great questions is going to be one of the unique differentiators for humans. I'm not sure it is, but let's just say that's one of the examples. Yeah. Are we doing a good job training that in the context of students? You know, some people are just probably more prone to be naturally curious, right? Like, and by the way, toddlers are way better than any of us because they just ask why all the time. Yeah, You're like, yeah. well, why is the sun hot? I mean, you know, and you, you know, well, why is that? Why? You know, it's just why, why, why? And then we kind of beat that natural curiosity out of them by saying like, you know, just stop asking or you know, like, <laughs> Daddy's exhausted. Yeah, as like, a parent of a five-year-old, picking up what you're putting down. Yes. yes yeah, sorry. yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've recently survived that phase, but now I wish they asked more wise, you know, mm. the middle schoolers who never ask yeah. anything. <laughs> and so we've gone to the opposite end of the spectrum. But anyway, my point is, like, I, I don't think we've done a good job of that in education before AI. Yeah. Now in the midst of AI, right, are like, because this is like, hey, how do we train critical thinkers? Well, part of critical thinking is about really good questions, like really thinking about what those are. Mm. And I think you can create environments and, you know, train behaviors around doing that more mm. where you help people get better at it, even if they, you know, aren't naturally curious. But like, that's one of those categories that I, you know, that I worry a lot about. And so, yeah, that was a challenge pre-AI emergence. And now I think it is going to be exacerbated by how fast AI is moving. And then looking ahead, you just started. So, you know, in some ways you're free to kind of cast some vision out there into the world. And you also have had some interesting background to get you to this point. I think you're at an interesting vantage point where you might have some 
perspective to share on what's out ahead of us. The futurists I talk to always remind me that it's good to think about different scenarios rather than locking on just one. But if we were to talk about maybe a good and a bad and, you know, feel free to sprinkle a little weird in because that seems to be the timeline that we're living in. Can you paint some pictures for us around where things may be headed in terms of maybe the future of higher education as it intersects with the rapidly transforming world of work that's out there? Look, I'll start really broad and say that I'm convinced that the future will not distinguish between places of learning and places of work. And what do I mean by that? I think that they have to just do a better job of bringing relevance to bear and relevance is very much about, you know, how this is connected to the world of work. You know, I just want to be clear on this point. This isn't just about jobs for corporations. I think a lot of people go down this, you know, they're like, oh, well, this isn't just about careerism or, you know, capitalism or whatever. I agree. But it is about finding a relevant place in the world mm -hmm. where you are contributing, you are earning a family sustaining wage. Mm -hmm. That could be at a nonprofit, it could be at a government job, it could be in a for-profit company. Put those distinctions aside. How are we preparing people for success in the workplace, in their careers, broadly defined? And so, you know, that work-integrated learning, that connectivity with real experts who run the field, kind of the real-time activity that's happening there is really important. We need much more work-integrated learning in schools. And mm -hmm. on the flip side, an employer, we're going to be in a place where, as we kind of talked about earlier, you know, the constancy of the need for people to continually learn, upskill, reskill is so real that we need much more learning-integrated work in our places of employment. So that's mm -hmm. where I say my most hopeful vision. I think it's inevitable that we're moving in that direction one way or the other. But my most hopeful vision is that we just, we won't know the difference between a place of learning and a place of work if we do this really well. Right. Now, let me tell you some things I'm really scared about, you know, as a parent of a almost 15 and almost 13 year old, I think the technology and the things that they are surrounded by in their environment has fundamentally rewired their brains. And I'm not just my kids, I'm thinking about a, you know, a generation that has been surrounded by technologies of all types. And I asked the basic question, how does school compete with Fortnite and TikTok and chat GPT and, yeah. you know, whatever, like, that's a really tough question. Like, how, how do I make it dynamic? How do I make it exciting? How do I make it relevant? Yeah. And, you know, and my kids challenge me on this all the time, as much as I have expertise in this field of education and workforce development. I mean, the end of a daughter and a son in my own you know, household challenges me every day, as I know it does other parents. And uh, so I, I haven't figured that one out just yet. Yeah, but we're trying. We all keep showing up. We all keep trying. How about for brand ed? Where do you see this heading? And what does growth look like? You know, you're an established brand. You have four really signature programs. Where do you see things heading for your new organization? Yeah, there's, there's clearly so much opportunity still ahead with the, the current work we're doing, with the current brand partners that we're fortunate enough to work with. I mean, we have robust, growing pre-college programs, in-person summer experiences, some of the newer things that we've launched, you know, gap year opportunities for students or 
you know, within the study abroad framework, what I call an experiential semester, mm. you know, I think we can contribute a lot there, right? Mm. And mm. being a partner to college and universities or being a partner to high schools mm. where they can expose students through a partnership with brand ed to these types of opportunities for students. I think that's really going to be, you know, an exciting part of what we're doing. You know, and then in the future, sure, I, I know we will consider and think about, you know, new partners and new partners will come to us and say, we love what you're doing with Sotheby's. Can you do it for us? Right. And some of those are going to be a fit. Some may not. But I'm excited to think about what some of those other areas might be. You know, clearly we're doing fascinating work in, you know, the world of art, and the world of media or journalism, depending on how you want to define it, you know, the world of sport with city football. Some people may not know the city football brand as much, but Manchester City is one of the global sport organizations and entities that are part of city football. And so in any event, you know, we, we certainly see just a ton of opportunity to grow the work we're doing with those existing brand partners to become a big partner to colleges and universities in that process. So I think that's going to be the most, you know, initial focus over the, you know, the short midterm. And then you know, longer term, I think there's a lot of derivatives of what we're doing. That's what I'll say for now. Derivatives of what we're doing, right, that are going to be consistent with the relevant, experiential, taught by industry experts that I think we can do a lot with. And so, you know, there's several exciting ideas that are already on the table, but I think are going to be more in the mid to long term category because we've just got, we've got a lot of great opportunity with, you know, the existing partner set that we're already working with. In some ways, it is setting the bar appropriately high with these organizations where, you know, you talk about the challenge of just training up your workforce if you're Sotheby's or the New York Times, you know, just staying ahead of the curve in terms of the yep. human talent that you have. But then on top of that, to be able to create an institution of learning to help rising talent connect to the relevance and the future prospects that we're talking about, I could see why it would be an inspirational place to work and a place that's really moving the needle. I'm talking to Brandon Bastide, the new CEO of Branded. Branded-edu.com is the website. Brandon, we're about to wrap up here. It's amazing having you on. I'd love to have you back down the road to continue to track what's going on. But as we're concluding here, I'd love to give you the floor here to conclude with any takeaways or parting thoughts for our listeners as they head back to the rest of their lives. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Mike. It's always fun to talk to you. Yes, great questions. It's fun. And so it, it was my pleasure. But one of the things I've been talking a lot about lately and thinking about a lot lately is what I've called education cathedral building. And, you know, the concept of cathedral building is just, it's a really, it's a powerful one, and especially in the context of education. You know, the world's great cathedrals, many of them were built over decades and in some cases centuries. And you think about that for a while, and it's just, it's almost hard to comprehend, right? That somebody who maybe spent their entire life as an artisan working on some aspect of a cathedral never saw the finished product, but knew they were contributing to something greater than themselves. They were inspired by that very idea. They don't get to see the finished product, but they know they're contributing to something that's going to last long after they're gone. Mm. And all great educational institutions are cathedral building by nature. Hmm. You don't get to great. You don't become Kaplan if you haven't been thinking about long-term 
cathedral building. And, you know, you think about the great brands, they're university brands who have been around now for hundreds of years. Those are education cathedrals. Mm. And as I think about brand ed and the brand partners we work with, you know, the collective age of our brand partners is 750 years of brand building between these amazing brands, right? Like we are, we are built on the shoulders of cathedral building giants in their respective industries. And so, you know, here's a simple point. We have to be world-class at what we do. We have to deliver on a transformative experience. We owe that to the cathedral building that has, you know, come before us and is still unfolding. And so my, my advice to everybody in the education space is, my critique of the space is that we have far too much short-term thinking. Hmm. You know, I'm going to develop an app to fix this really specific thing in this specific moment in time. We need things like that, but that's a tool. That's not education cathedral building, right? And, and I just, I worry that we have too few of us thinking in, you know, decades long terms, right? Mm, we might mm. think quarterly, we might think, you know, but, but like, we just need to be operating in a decades long or even century long mindset. And that might sound in, you know, great tension to how fast we need to move with AI and all these yeah. changing things. The point about it is, you know, to invest in the fundamental building blocks, to be thinking long-term, like what does it mean to be here a hundred years from now? Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that the work that Brand Ed is doing is here a hundred years from now. And I think there are some fundamental, you know, values, you know, there's a mission around that. And there is very much a strategy followed by tactics that will get it there. But that would be my big takeaway. If you're in, you know, thinking about becoming an ed tech entrepreneur, you're in the space, right? Do you want to be a cathedral builder mm. or is it something else? And the simple point is we need more cathedral building in the education space. Amazing stuff. I'm looking forward to the Sagrada Familia of education to continue to unfold before our eyes. I'm looking forward to tracking whatever you have going on. Brandon Bastide, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Thanks, Mike. Great to be with you. And for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. We'll have uh, links to what we talked about on the show notes. Please subscribe, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.